You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Imagine being there and seeing that poor man, lame from his mother's wound, leaping for joy and clinging to Peter and John with absolute tears of joy running down his face. His life was changed forever. And it was changed forever by the words of Peter. And that miracle almost seems like it was calculated, like the man was just a tool. Uh, And in some ways it is a convenient miracle because it led to a great many people being converted. But this man and his poor condition would have been something that just drew on the heartstrings of people as they saw him sitting there every day. And we're told that everyone, in verses 9 and 10, everyone knew who this man was. They'd walked past him for years. He sat there at the very threshold of the temple. He couldn't go any further because of his condition and because of the people who... Um, corruptly ruled the temple and would have denied him access. So this miracle actually demonstrated beyond all doubt that God is powerful and that his authority rested on these apostles, Peter and John here, and that the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, quite a derogatory term, wouldn't it have been, to those Jews that were there, the Jews that despised anything that came out of Nazareth. And yet Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the one through whom this miracle was performed. So this miracle kind of elevated that name of Jesus Christ and beyond all doubt people knew from this miracle that, that, that he was indeed the Messiah. Now... We're going to have a look tonight at the resurrection, but we're going to look at it, um, I guess, as, as cynics, as people that um, we can pretend that, that we might not believe in the resurrection, that we might doubt that it's a real thing that happened, as many people in the world do today. And it's, it's faith-affirming, as we look at this subject, to look at the evidence, both in the New Testament itself and also externally, that affirms that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happens. And we'll have a look at that evidence as we go through. You might be surprised at how powerful the evidence actually is. And then we'll see um, what that actually means for us. So we might perhaps have a different view of evidence um, to that which we should. Um, People in the world today, I think faith has become a bit of a, well, not a dirty word, but it's it's a word that implies that you don't really have any proof for what you believe. You've got faith, but that means you can't prove it. But that's actually not, not true at all. In fact, every single person has faith. They have faith in something. Everyone has faith when they step into a, a lift that they're not going to plummet to their death. And what's that faith based on? Everyone's faith is built on something. It might be the, the integrity of the engineers that designed that lift. 
might be in the fact that lots of people have been in that lift before and haven't died, I should be right. The same thing goes with, with faith in the things that the Bible presents as well. Some people have very real evidence for their faith and some people just believe it because everyone else does. But we should be striving to have faith that is based on evidence and faith that's based on evidence can really help us to teach other people and, and encourage them as well because this age demands evidence and and poses, you know, scientific and, and needing proof. And God hasn't left us without proof. It's amazing when we look at this subject. So God has definitely given us enough evidence to prove beyond all doubt that what the disciples taught on this day and throughout the rest of the New Testament is trustworthy and true. So we'll have a look at that soon. The first thing I wanted to have a look at, though, in this particular chapter, something that, that leapt out to me when we, we had it read through tonight, is this amazing example of these transformed disciples. Now, I say transformed because if you look at the Gospel records, and if you were assuming that the New Testament was written by a bunch of, of frauds who were writing this and making it all up, and, you know, the disciples were the superheroes and the leaders of this new religion, I doubt whether you would write about the disciples' failings in such detail and portray them in such a, in such a failing light. When, after the transfiguration, there's an occasion where the crowds came to Jesus and, they, um, and, and a man was, was desiring that his son would be healed... And he'd taken the son to the disciples because Jesus wasn't there. And they lacked the faith to heal that man. And Jesus, in exasperation, healed the man and um, taught them powerfully that they needed faith. Themselves, the disciples, needed faith to be able to perform that miracle. And in fact, that's sort of brought out here in this chapter as well. If you look in verse 16, um, you'll see that Peter says that the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, which is what the name he's talking about, through faith in this name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Now, was this the faith of the man or the faith of the disciples? Now, the man, this is a dad joke, sorry, but I can't resist. The man asked for arms, he got legs. Um, he wasn't exactly showing a faithful spirit at the start, was he? He didn't even know who Peter and John were. And he asked for some money to help him out. And instead, Peter invokes the name of Jesus Christ and he walks for the first time. Completely unexpected. That's not to say that he had no faith. I'm sure he would have heard of Jesus Christ. But I think the faith was a mutual thing that that... The disciples certainly had to have faith. Imagine if they lacked the faith and, and shouted out in front of everyone, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and nothing happened. It'd be a bit of a, bit of a fizzer, wouldn't it, if they didn't have the faith and the confidence that they did. But they didn't seem to 
have any doubt in their minds whatsoever, did they? It's almost like Peter just saw him there and thought, we can fix this. And he just speaks with such confidence and the man just rises up. That faith that they had. And when you look at the state of the disciples after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we wonder and marvel at the transformation that's happened here, the confidence that they had. Um, If you have a look in chapter 4, we didn't read that tonight, but the story goes on into chapter 4, and they are absolutely courageous in front of a very serious accusation and standing before the religious authorities of the day. They're totally fearless. And yet, when you look at their, their example before, um, sorry, just immediately after the death of Christ, it says that they all forsook Jesus and fled. We know that, don't we, when they were in the garden? They all ran for their lives and left their master behind. Peter denied his Lord three times. Even, and in fact, in that passage there, or sorry, not in that passage, in the Luke passage, it says that Jesus was within seeing distance of Peter. And Peter had made a promise before, I'll never deny you. And then he denied him for the third time and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So, of course, Jesus was crucified as a criminal. And then afterwards, it says in John chapter 20 that they're all gathered together, locked in a little room with the doors shut, and they're absolutely terrified, it says, of the Jews. And in chapter 4 of Acts, they are absolutely fearless in front of the same Jews. Absolutely fearless. It's incredible the courage that they have. When the women came and, and excitedly told them that they'd seen the risen Lord, they refused to believe the women. And they were told off by Jesus later when he did appear to them. And in fact, when Jesus appeared to them, they still couldn't believe their eyes. They had failed to understand the clear teaching of Jesus. And I think that's a a bit of evidence that you could put in favour of the record in the New Testament. Who would write a story like this? If you were putting forward these disciples as the leaders of this wonderful new movement, why would you portray them as absolute failures who failed to understand one of the most fundamental teachings of Jesus Christ? So we ask, what was it that transformed these disciples from cowering, terrified people into fearless, courageous individuals? I think you all know the answer. It's the subject of our talk tonight. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you'll see that it's actually a core theme in um, <clears throat> I'm lost in my notes now it's, it's a core theme throughout the book, of, uh, the book of Acts actually all of the speeches in Acts mention the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection here is mentioned a number of times in this chapter in verse 6 and it's mentioned there again in verse uh, 15. It's also mentioned over in the next chapter as well a couple of times. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the thing that transformed these disciples. 
and it's something that can also transform us. It's meant to transform us and inspire us and encourage us to be fearless in the face of persecution. And when we have a look at the confidence of, uh, for example, Paul, who writes in 1 Corinthians 15, we can see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was absolutely fundamental to the beliefs of the early first century believers. He writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. This is reading from the ESV. And you are still in your sins. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them whatsoever. If in Christ we have, this, we have hope in this life only, no resurrection, then we of all people are most to be pitied. Why did he say that? Because their life wasn't unicorns and rainbows and, and all sorts of delightful things, was it? They were suffering terribly for their beliefs. And yet they were committed to them and fearlessly faced them. Because, in fact, as he writes here, Christ has been raised from the dead. He can emphatically say it without a hint of doubt. Christ has been raised from the dead. And so we do have a hope. We are not left hopeless. There is real power in the resurrection and it's a transforming power that can motivate us to change. Now, it's, it's actually interesting because there is a lot of, and, and you will have perhaps noticed this if you've talked to other people about the Bible, people who don't believe in the Bible, uh, people who don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, you'll notice that there's a lot of, of doubt about even the Bible itself. You know, the Bible, we can, we can use this book and say, look, you know, it says here that Jesus rose from the dead, um, so there you go. And perhaps for some of us that's enough. But it's not enough for someone who doesn't even believe that the Bible is the word of God. But if you can prove that the resurrection happened, well then there should be no barriers to believing the word of God at all, should there? So it is a very, it can be a very faith-affirming thing to have a look at the resurrection and try to, to objectively weigh up the evidence. Did it really happen? Well, that's a question we can ask ourselves tonight and see what the Bible might have to say and what other things might have to say. But it's interesting that, that even cynical scholars who, who don't accept that the Bible's message is true, um, historians who, who just study the Bible as one of the books that's written as a history book, um, they don't believe what it says, but they do treat it as something that, that might have something to say on history, um, they do not dispute the fact that the disciples of Jesus Christ were transformed and really changed because of what they believed. And this is actually some quite powerful evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So no one would dispute today, no one with any um, you know, reasonable level of qualification, whether they believe that Jesus rose from the dead or not, no one would dispute the fact that the disciples were terrified and broken-hearted and devastated and at a loss after Jesus died and then something happened that transformed them 
into people that led a revolution, really, and formed the start of a, a religion that has taken over, at the time, took over the, the world almost, which is amazing, isn't it? So I guess, <clears throat> as we've been saying, all these, all these stories that, that, that talk about the, the faithlessness of the, the disciples have this ring of truth in them, don't they? Because you wouldn't write this if you're an imposter writing a fake story to try and justify the reason why you're, you're you know, trying to lead people to believe in, in a, a supposed Jesus who wasn't really risen from the dead. And in fact... People of that time, perhaps, perhaps us today, we might have this arrogant view that we have come a long way, that we know a lot more than people 2,000 years ago knew, and perhaps people back then were a whole bunch of you know, superstitious fools who were just so desperate for this Messiah that they just took the first one that came along. But that is absolutely not the case with Jesus Christ. There was... There was nothing in Jesus Christ at all that any Jew would have expected. He did not fit the mould that the Jews were expecting for the Messiah. No one, not even his closest disciples, understood that the Messiah had to die on the cross uh, and, be, and be put to death by the Romans, a persecution and a, a death that was actually um, pretty much... The, the, it would put an end to anyone who would believe in Jesus because it was such a, a horrific way to die that it shamed that person and disgraced them and, and you just couldn't bring yourself to believe in them after that. So against all the odds, though, people believed that the Lord Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And it all started in that very location where he had been put to death. It didn't start, you know... Thousands of kilometres away when someone, you know, made up a story about Jesus and no one could prove it and they all just started believing it. It happened in the very spot where it was supposed to have happened. And this is all quite powerful evidence. So let's just have a look at some of the evidence. Now what I'm going to do tonight is just, um, just review. This is, a, this is a book I've had on my bookshelf for quite a while, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And it's uh, written by two um, Christian scholars who um, have done an amazing amount of work in documenting thousands of um, ancient manuscripts and pulling them all together. And they form a, a case that proves the resurrection of Jesus. And they actually, in this book, they're presenting it in a way that helps you to preach it and teach it to people who uh, may not believe it. And one of the things that they that they have um, done in this book, um, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, is they've come up with these five minimal facts, as they call them. And <clears throat> one of the problems with talking to people about the resurrection of Jesus is they don't really accept that the New Testament is actually worth listening to or trustworthy in any way. But these five minimal facts are actually facts that a non-Christian historian and a Christian historian alike would both accept without hesitation. 
uh, perhaps excluding the last one. And that wouldn't be because of evidence, it might be because of where the evidence might lead. So these five minimal facts, they are accepted, I'm just going to say it again, they're accepted by all um, historians who are worth listening to, whether they're Christian or not. And the first one that I've got up there on the screen might be surprising to you, because there's lots of people that have sought to discredit this, haven't they? Over time, people even dispute the fact that Jesus was a real person. But no credible historian would do that. So this minimal fact, Jesus was a real person and he died by crucifixion. So, <clears throat> sorry, I'm just going to try and find it in my notes. Ugh. All right, here we are. So there's actually, in, um, in ancient literature outside of the Bible even, there are five non-Christian sources, I'm not going to list them now, um, and some of them are actually written by the enemies of Jesus that affirm that Jesus was a real person. And if you're a historian, you're kind of like a jigsaw puzzle um, assembler. You've got not much information to go by, or in, in the case actually of, of, of Jesus' resurrection, you've got quite a lot. But you've got all these little pieces and you're trying to arrange them in the way that makes the most sense. And a historian, if they're looking at a bunch of um, documents, you know, if they're all written by people that believed in Jesus and believed that he rose from the dead, well, a cynical person might say, well, oh, yeah, they're just making that up or they're deluded. Because they believe it, they're trying to prove something that, that affirms what they believe. But when an enemy someone who is against Jesus states that he's a real person. Well, they sit up and take notice because they call that a, a hostile source and that's something that they would take special notice of. And in fact, there's Jewish sources from you know, the, the ancient Jewish writings, people who hated Jesus and tried to discredit him as much as they possibly could. They write about Jesus as a real person. And there are other ancient Roman documents that talk about Jesus being put to death by crucifixion. So as much as anyone can be confident in any fact historically, Jesus was a real person and died by crucifixion. I might be labouring the point, but it's quite important, isn't it? And it's, it's even this simple f fact here is quite faith-affirming because... You know, it, it almost makes you feel like, oh, maybe I'm not such a fool for believing in, you know, and putting so much faith in just one book um, and perhaps feeling like I've got no evidence for it. Not that we need the evidence that we're presenting now, but some people do. So the second fact is, and we've already touched on this a little bit, the disciples really believed that Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them. Now, a historian might say, yeah, they, they really believed it, but were they right? They might question that. They might say that there was a, some sort of mass hallucination or some other mysterious uh, method that convinced all these people that Jesus actually had been risen from the dead. But 
no one disputes the fact that the disciples really, really believed that he had risen and had appeared to them. And in fact, when you go through the New Testament, there's no getting around it, is there? They say it over and over and over again. It's such an important foundation doctrine that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's, again, quite a bit of documentary evidence outside of the Bible even that talks about the resurrection of Jesus or at least the fact that the disciples claimed that it had happened. And uh, there's seven ancient sources, six of which are outside of the New Testament writings, which is quite amazing. So as a historian, we've already talked about the fact that they would take special notice of someone who was an enemy talking about uh, something and they would say, well, they'd have every reason to discredit that if it wasn't true and they would say it, but the fact that they're affirming it, they're actually giving powerful evidence to it happening. Well, another thing that a historian would take special notice of is when someone really believes something, if they're prepared to follow through on that belief to the point where they're willing to die for that belief, well, why wouldn't you take notice of that? Why would someone die, give up the most precious thing that they have, their life, for something that wasn't really true? And that can probably be an exhortation for all of us, can't it? Do we really, really believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead because if we do then there's nothing that we need to be afraid of and these disciples were fearless in the face of persecution and some of them died for their beliefs they really really believed it and if they really really believed it there's a whole bunch of explanations that people have put forward to sort of try and explain this and you know discredit it some of which are you know like um, the disciples stole the body. Well, that's one that the Jews started, isn't it? The Jews, after the, the, you know, the tomb was empty, um, the, disciple, uh, the, the Jews made up this story. The disciples came along and stole the body and they're pretending that he's risen from the dead. Well, if the disciples had stolen the body, why would they give up their lives um, for that story, that made-up story? They wouldn't. No one would do that. There's nothing in it for them. In fact, their whole life became one of suffering and persecution. There was nothing prestigious or, you know, gratifying to the flesh that they were doing in, in proclaiming that Jesus had risen if he had not. All right. Fact number three. Saul, the persecutor, changed and became a devout convert. So there's, there's a huge mountain of evidence for this one, isn't there? In fact, most of the New Testament letters are written by Paul himself. And even though they're in the Bible, historians still accept that they're valid documents and they, they can use them as, as proof or otherwise. But the fact that Saul was an enemy and he was so opposed to the, Jewish, the Christian faith and to the point of persecuting and putting people to death for what they believed, and historians accept that Paul really was like this, um, that he was a real person and, and really persecuted the, the, the ecclesias and then later changed. This is something that a historian will sit up and take notice of because it has to be something incredibly profound 
to turn someone around who is that bent on destroying and exterminating a bunch of people who are teaching what he viewed at the time as heresy, as, as, as untruths, as a perversion and a heresy. He wanted to stamp it out and yet something happened, something happened that turned him in his tracks and he charged in the other direction without flinching for the rest of his life. He became the most prolific disciple of the Lord, perhaps motivated most of all by the guilt of what he'd been doing to the disciples of, of the Lord before he, turned, he, he was converted. So it's difficult to think of anything else, isn't it? What else could have happened to turn someone so determined to stamp out the religion of the, of, of the Christians other than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? He was an elite scholar. He was not just a simpleton, was he? He was, you know, the cream of the crop of the Jews, absolutely set in his ways, and yet he swallowed his pride, turned in his tracks, and became one of the greatest of Jesus' disciples. So fact number four, and this is quite similar, I guess, to um, the third fact. We've got another person that... And remember, remember how I said before that they're minimal facts? It means that all historians who are worth listening to would accept these, grudgingly or not. They would accept that these are real things that history teaches actually happened. And they accept that James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, um, they might argue that he was the full brother, who knows, but they accept that James was a real person. They accept that he was a sceptic. He did not believe that his brother was the Messiah um, and that he somehow, for some weird reason, switched his beliefs entirely and became an incredibly faithful disciple and, in fact, headed up the ecclesia in Jerusalem. He was one of the, one of the key founders of the ecclesia there. So he was a, a sceptic. He was very cynical and unbelieving of his brother. In fact, all his brothers were. Um, until after he was raised, or alleged to be raised. Sorry, we're pretending that perhaps Jesus didn't rise at the moment. So this, again, is, is very powerful evidence. You know, someone who is, is a family member and, and opposed to a particular person, well, you know, they, they've probably got good reasons for that, you would, you would think, wouldn't you? Because family members know people best. They... They see them in the, in the good times and the bad. And James had been there with his brother as he grew up and he found it incredibly hard, impossible in fact, to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet, something changed his mind. And he didn't just say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. History records and it's accepted by historians that he actually made the ultimate sacrifice. He was put to death for his beliefs as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus. He was stoned to death in the temple itself, I believe. Um, I believe it's recorded. All right, so we're up to number five. And the fifth one, I said before that um, as far as the minimal facts go, most um, historians will accept this one, but some of them may um, argue the point because... 
perhaps when you add it to the, the weight of evidence of these other four points, maybe the conclusion is a bit um, too painful to swallow. So the last fact, Jesus was buried in a tomb and the tomb was later found to be empty. So we could go on and on about the empty tomb, couldn't we? There's, there's actually a lot of evidence um, in the New Testament and outside the New Testament that show that Jesus' body was put in the tomb and it was pretty much humanly impossible for him to be removed from the tomb. I've just got a little illustration. This, believe it or not, is the tomb. And this is a very, very, very large boulder um, that actually ran down a track that they made um, and then clunked into place to seal that tomb off. And it was um, a very heavy stone. Some say, you know, up to a tunnel or, or so. Very hard to move. On top of that, Jesus was a, a prisoner of, of interest and importance. And it was in the interest of the Jews and the Romans, that his body was protected. So on top of the stone being rolled over a, a, a stone cavern, which you couldn't you know, dig into because it's encased in rock, there's a big sign put over it saying, keep out, not trespassers prosecuted, trespassers executed. This wasn't something that you just um, you know, dreamed up, why not, let's go and open this grave and, and steal the body. You faced death for violating that tomb. And they put um, clay either side of the tomb with a rope across it. And if you breached that rope, you were going to be subject to the wrath of Rome. And that was a pretty serious thing. On top of that, there's a bunch of guards who really knew what they were doing. And in fact, I've read um, <clears throat> information regarding these guards, depending on whose guards they were, they, if they were caught sleeping on their duty, um, they were stripped of their clothes, uh, they, made a pile, they made a fire out of the clothes and burned them to death um, with the fire. So you didn't want to fall asleep if you're on duty um, in that guard. So Jesus' body was placed in that tomb um, and the evidence is there. He was locked up, you know, Fort Knox style, Houdini himself couldn't have escaped from the tomb um, and no one could have got him out. It was pretty much guaranteed. He's locked in that tomb. And yet, somehow, something happened and this is how the tomb was found. Empty. Open. What could have happened? What could explain that? How could that tomb have been empty? How could those broken, terrified disciples have overcome the Roman guard, dared to defy the orders of Rome, rolled that stone away, stole the body and pulled off the biggest heist in history by pretending that Jesus was risen from the dead and then dying for their beliefs? They didn't die, you know, in fame and glory, filthy rich, they died, as it says in that First Corinthians quote, of all men most miserable if Christ really had not risen from the dead. So this empty tomb 
theory, or sorry, um, fact, is not just attested to by Christians, it's actually attested by enemies as well. So remember how we said before a hostile um, testimony was viewed very favourably by historians? Well, in fact, there's no, no one all those years ago even thought to invent the theory, if they're trying to discredit it, no one thought of the theory, oh, the tomb's not empty. There's no historical reference ever of anyone saying the tomb's not empty. He's still in the, in the tomb. And there's a number of very good reasons for that. Um, but the Jewish theory, you remember, it's actually recorded in the Bible, the disciples came by night and stole the body of Jesus away. So they don't deny that the tomb was empty. They just say the disciples took it, which itself is ridiculous. But the fact is... Christianity started in Jerusalem and people could wander through the garden and go up to the tomb and have a look inside and say, yep, it's empty. And in fact, if the Romans, who didn't want an uprising, they didn't want a new movement starting, which upset the Jews, the Jews certainly didn't want Christianity starting and getting off the ground, all they would have had to have done is lead the disciples and lead the Christians to the the tomb, produce the body of Jesus and the movement of Christianity would have been stopped then and there. And they would dearly have loved to have been able to produce the body of Jesus and stop that. But they couldn't and they didn't. I wonder why. So those five facts that we talked about before, I really like that approach because... It kind of sidesteps the whole argument of whether the New Testament is reliable and trustworthy. We know it is. But this approach actually gives you confidence once you understand the mountain of evidence that exists even outside of the New Testament that could convince anyone who accepts those facts, Christian or not, when you, when you add all of the evidence up, it's very hard to think of any other explanation that fits all of that apart from the fact that maybe Christ actually did rise from the dead. And I think that's the only real possibility that fits all the facts. So there's actually many more facts we can talk about um, and there's many more ridiculous theories that people have dreamt up over time to sort of try and discredit the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and in fact, you could, you could probably talk about that for a number of nights. We just don't have the time tonight. But this whole subject is absolutely amazing. It's faith-affirming, and it doesn't just prove that Jesus rose from the dead. It proves that you know, the message of the Bible that we hold in our laps, that we read and we believe in, actually has real substance based on real evidence. It's not just, you know a book of fairy tales or a collection of ancient writings that may or may not be true, it's a valid, legitimate historical document that records actual events that really happened. And that's something that can be powerful for people who are trying to find truth in a world that is trying its hardest to discredit and um, lead people away from God and, in fact, you know, undermine and exterminate Christianity probably even more determinedly than 
Saul did before he was converted. So I don't know about you, but I find this um, quite a, an encouraging um, exercise to go through and have a look at. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I highly recommend uh, reading this book um, if you get the chance. It's got a lot of interesting information, um, far more than just the five facts we looked at tonight. But you'll see that the evidence amounts to something very substantial and very hard to argue against. All right, so let's grudgingly admit <clears throat> maybe the resurrection actually did happen. So what? Big deal. Jesus rose from the dead. Okay. I mean, how, how, many, how many people know someone that's, that's died? I mean, probably all of us do. And how many people know someone that's been brought back from the dead, maybe a few minutes after they've died. You know, they're, they're resuscitated and brought back to life. Maybe some of us know someone like that. Well, how about someone that's been dead for three days and then brought back to life? How can that body live again? What does it mean? Where does the evidence point to? If Jesus actually rose from the dead, he was really dead, and then he was really alive again, clearly, what other explanation can we have than that God exists, than that God cares, the Bible can be trusted, and God has intervened in human history, that God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through that resurrection, God actually approved of that man, that wonderful man, his example, everything that he did in his life, everything that he taught, God put his seal of approval on it. He, he stamped his seal on it and said, I approve of this man and I'm not going to leave him in the grave. He is coming out of that grave and that's going to prove to everyone that he has my endorsement and my authority. And the disciples, they were given authority too, weren't they? They were given the seal of God as well because when they started speaking through the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, amazing things started happening like a lame man who couldn't walk, had never walked his whole life, suddenly leaps up and is jumping around like, I don't know, an Olympic athlete. Who knows? Incredible things happened because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> we're going to um, conclude shortly, but the whole point of the resurrection is not just an interesting historical fact that happened, um, that we can prove that happened. It's actually supposed to do something to us. And in fact, um, the resurrection and the, and the death of Jesus Christ are spoken of in, in Romans chapter 6 and in many other places as a process that Jesus went through that we also are called to go through. So let's just have a look. Let's turn up Romans chapter 6. This is quite a well-known passage and we would read this at pretty much well, most baptisms, if not all baptisms. 
Um, and there's a very good reason for it, because it's talking about baptism, which is actually nothing but a symbol of the very process that Jesus went through. Jesus died, and Jesus was raised to life again, and baptism is exactly the same thing that all of us go through as well. So let's have a look at Romans chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 4. So we are buried with him, Jesus, by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, and that's what baptism is all about, isn't it? You go under the water, and if you stayed under the water for long enough, you'd be dead, just like Jesus, in the tomb with no way of escape. But a baptised person is raised up out of the water, just like Jesus came out of that tomb. And that has implications for the way we live. So we've been planted together in verse 5 in the likeness of his death. We've gone through that death symbolically. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, our old way of life, is crucified with him or put to death, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And we could go on and read this whole amazing chapter, but it's talking about something that we need to respond to. Jesus' death and resurrection is not just a fact it's something we enact and live um, <clears throat> ourselves. And there's other passages that we mentioned as well. But um, that, that quote we looked at before in 1 Corinthians 15, that's all about the resurrection, that chapter. And it talks about it being the core fundamental building block that the whole of the Christian faith is based on. Jesus rose from the dead. And without that... Without Jesus rising from the dead, there is absolutely nothing. There's no point being here tonight. We may as well go home because our faith would be meaningless. But the fact that Christ has risen and we can have confidence in that fact, it means that, that our hope is substantial and worth, um, <clears throat> and worth following. So as we mentioned before, that, that resurrection of Jesus Christ, it transformed the disciples. And in Acts chapter 3 and in Acts chapter 4, there are these fearless missionaries who go out and they proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ without any hesitation whatsoever. Despite the risk, despite the persecution that might come, they could not be silenced. And it was all because they knew that their Lord had been raised. So I'll put this slide back up for all the kids that are frantically trying to get the last bits down. But I just want to put this last quote up um, because it's, it sort of beautifully summarises what we've been talking about. Being risen with Christ. We're not dead. We're not without hope. We've actually been raised up if we're baptised into Christ. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The confidence that the resurrection brings is one not just of an affirmation that we're following Jesus and, and we're doing the right thing now. It has a real future hope that one day we will be literally resurrected along with all those who have served Christ faithfully. They too will come out of the graves and be united with him to live forever in his wonderful kingdom. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.